that we have two Sunday school classes coming up here uh, starting in September. The first is Women Helping Women, and that's going to be taught by Lisa Bumgarner, and that's going to be an all-women's class. Actually, that's starting uh, October 3rd, so for those that do take that class, uh, you will be in Pastor Reed's class uh, till the start of that. Um, and then the second class offered is Pastor Reed will be teaching a class entitled The Gentleness and Lowliness of Christ. And that is a, a book study, or there will be a book um, that we are giving out for that, and that's found on the information desk. So if you're going to be in that class for the entirety of the class, uh, we'd invite you to grab a free copy of that in the back. It's entitled uh, Gentle and Lowly, and, and they're stacked up there in the back on the information desk. But you can, and we'd ask that you do sign up online uh, for either of those classes. And then the second thing I'll mention is, uh, just came out this week, we will be having a membership class. So if you're interested in just learning uh, about becoming a member of the Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church, we'd ask that you'd sign up online for that membership class, and that's going to be forming soon. So uh, please sign up for that sooner uh, rather than later. And then lastly, we have an elders meeting uh, immediately following this service, so, and that will be in, in room 30. Let's just open our uh, service with a word of prayer. Lord, I just thank you for uh, the time that we can sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. And Lord, I just pray that um, as we hear your word preached, that you would just remind us that this is no man-made book. This is not just human words, but ultimately, this is your word. And Lord, we thank you for uh, just giving us um, your written word so that we might study it, so that we might read it and memorize it and meditate upon it, and ultimately, live out your word. And I pray that we would do exactly that as we sit, sit under um, just this series on the book of Psalms, that we wouldn't only know things or learn things, but we'd actually walk away doing things. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts and our lives by the hearing of your word. And we even thank you for the time that we get to uh, sing in worship, uh, the time that we get to just even pray. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would use all of these things uh, to honor and to glorify your name. And in your name I pray. Amen. We'll begin our worship tonight by singing hymn number 466, God of Grace and God of Glory. Uh, hymnals are found under your pews, and I'm going to ask you to stand hymn number 466.
Thank you. You may be seated. We'll continue in song with Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. That's 312, hymn number 312, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting 
What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way, the everlasting arms. Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting Thank you, Mike, for that ministry and music. Appreciate it very much. Good evening. Great to see you all. Thanks for coming back tonight. Appreciate your being out this evening. I'd uh, just like uh, to begin with a word uh, about uh, Sunday school. As was mentioned, uh, my class is going to be studying the book uh, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, and uh, it's just a, an excellent book. Uh, I read quite a bit, and I would say that this is, for me, the most refreshing, helpful book that I've read in a good number of years. And so I was just really excited about uh, other people reading it as well and uh, going over some of the, the concepts that uh, are stated in the book for uh, he does it extremely well. It's very readable, very understandable, uh, and it's uh, very biblical. So all that to say, uh, I have a good number of copies, and uh, if you would sign up for the class, 
this week, uh, if you were planning to attend, that would be terrific so that I would know how many people are going to be in my class and uh, how many uh, additional books that I would have available for uh, other people. I'm hoping that anybody who wants a book can have one, uh, but I'm not there yet, and so uh, that is my desire to make it available uh, to as many people as possible. But uh, if you are going to be in that class, I would encourage you to pick up the book and to uh, read uh, as much of it as you can before the class starts and uh, as the class goes on, and I think you'll find it to be uh, of value. Having said all that, I certainly would re recommend uh, uh, Lisa's class to you as well. Uh, this is not a competition, uh, and uh, I'm sure that's going to be of great value and benefit uh, to you ladies. Uh, tonight, we're looking at Psalm 6. Psalm 6. And uh, the beginning thought here is, how can one have confidence in prayer when one is suffering due to one's sinfulness? Now, this is a psalm that there is no uh, heading as to the occasion for which it is written. Uh, many of the psalms do have the occasion. This one does not. But as you work your way through the psalm, it becomes apparent that this is a psalm that is written in the time of David's grieving over his sin, whatever that particular instance may have been. And as he's grieving over that sin and describes it, it gives us a sense of how to pray when one is under conviction, uh, when one is experiencing the difficulties and uh, struggles that our sinfulness produces. So the theme tonight is praying to God in a time of our sinfulness. Uh, David is asking God to treat him better than he deserves. Uh, that is a common way in which sometimes uh, people respond to how you're doing. Uh, sometimes people say, well, better than I deserve. Uh, we can all say that. Uh, we are doing better than we deserve. But there are some times in which we are very, very cognizant of the fact that we're not very deserving of God's grace, God's goodness, God's blessing. In fact, we may struggle even under the thought, could God love me in this particular time because of what I've done or how I've let him down or whatever in our own discouragement. So David is asking God to treat him better than he deserves. David is seeking to be spared from God's penal judgment, from God's penal judgment. There are certain illustrations that I use time and time and time and time again so that they become kind of ingrained in you, that when you think of this concept, you have a thought that immediately comes to mind. And uh, over the years, I've used this illustration many times, so I hope it comes immediately to your mind because I'm going to talk about the difference between what are penal consequences of sin and what are the natural consequences of sin. The natural consequences are the things that are the fallout of sin that one can expect because of what sin produces. So my illustration, and you can see how many years I've been doing this, goes back to when Sarah was about three years old. And Sarah, when she was three years old, had 
a difficulty keeping shoes on her feet. She would run around barefoot all the time, and I would keep having to tell her to put her shoes on. Well, it's not too bad running around uh, in her bare feet, but running outside in midwinter uh, with uh, the cold and uh, the snow, and why would any kid want to run around in the snow without her shoes on? I don't know, but it might explain sort of why Sarah is the way she is today. But <clears throat> she's not here. She's not here. But we do have the internet. <clears throat> but I would say to Sarah, you cannot run around without your shoes on. I said, you are going to catch a cold and you're going to get a spanking. All right? The natural consequence is you're going to catch a cold. The penal consequence is you're going to get a spanking. The one is directly related. The natural consequences have to do with being outside in the cold weather, not having your shoes on. You can expect that you're going to get sick. The other is a penal consequence that's not directly related in that having shoes not on your feet isn't going to always result in a spanking by any means, but the penal aspect is to teach a lesson and hope to bring someone to conformity. Well, here, David is talking about God's penal judgment. David is experiencing the natural consequences of his sin. And it should always be remembered that even though we experience God's forgiveness, oftentimes there are the natural consequences that we have to endure because of our sinfulness. Uh, sin is harmful. Sin is dreadful. So there are these natural consequences. But there are also the, the penal consequences. And it is the penal consequences that are primarily in view in this particular passage. First, David knows that he is wrong and needs to be corrected, but wants to be corrected in love, not anger. Psalm 6, verse 1, rebuke me not in your anger. He is not saying, do not rebuke me. That's important. He's saying, rebuke me. I know that I have done wrong, but not in your anger. Not in your anger. Don't let me experience your anger over my wrongdoing. The second thought is very closely connected to the first, but there's a different nuance. David also knows that he has need of restraint, but wants to be restrained as a child, not as an outcast. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And when he's talking about wrath, he's, he's talking about God's outpouring of his wrath in judgment. And David is asking God to discipline him, but not to judge him. And of course, we can be assured that we are not going to be judged in the ultimate sense for our sin. Christ bore the consequences of our sinfulness. He bore uh, God's wrath in our stead. We can be assured of eternal life, but there is a broken fellowship that happens because of our sin. There is an alienation that we experience from God. And so he's asking God to discipline him. And the aspect here of discipline is doing those things that are going to cause David to be restrained. He's asking God to bring things into his life that is going to conform him 
to the will of God. Uh, he's saying, lay down your law, lay down your standards for me. As we would perhaps discipline our, our children uh, by setting up some boundaries for them so that they won't continue in this, this practice. And then thirdly, David asked God to be forgiving and kind to him. Be gracious unto me, O Lord. And now we have the motivation of what is prompting all of this. And that is David is in need of God's grace because David is a physical, emotional, and spiritual wreck. Here we see the consequences of sin. First, David is an emotional wreck. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Why? For I am languishing. And the word here to languish is to be extremely weak, to be emotionally tired. Um, we might talk about being depressed. You know, when, when we're down, we can have a, an emotional tiredness that far exceeds a physical tiredness. You can sleep off a physical tiredness. You can get rested with a good night's sleep when you've worked hard. In fact, Ecclesiastes said that the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. You fall asleep, you're tired, you're exhausted, you wake up, you're refreshed, and you're ready to go. But an emotional tiredness is of an entirely different nature. It's, it's a different animal. Uh, you go to bed tired and you wake up tired. And you may not even feel like getting out of bed. And you just wonder if you can face <laughs> what is going to be happening that day. You, you just feel drained. David is talking about this emotional weakness of just being drained, of feeling like he can't go on. Uh, he can't persevere. Doesn't have any gumption. The second is David is a physical wreck. Be gracious unto me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are, are troubled. My bones are troubled. Uh, some commentators uh, disagree as to whether or not we should understand this in a metaphorical sense or a literal sense. Is, is David just metaphorically saying, my bones are, are troubled, or is there a physical reality to this? Is David actually talking about his bones being troubled? Well, Psalm 32 describes David again in a sinful state. And in Psalm 32, he is rejoicing in the blessings of forgiveness. So in Psalm 32, verse 1, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Uh, now, I take that as a very literal physical languishing, especially because of what verse four says. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. 
Thy strength was dried up as by heat of summer. Uh, David, in Psalm 32, it's clear that David is writing out of his experience with uh, Bathsheba, having committed adultery with Bathsheba and having her, her husband murdered. And David takes a year to repent. Uh, there's a 12 months of which David is agonizing in conviction. And uh, David's life is pretty miserable in that particular year of which he is unwilling to repent until finally, finally Nathan comes to him and, and uh, he's ready to repent at that, that time. So in this period of time, uh, I think he had some, some physical, physical problems. And verse 4, where it says, my strength was dried up by the heat of summer, uh, I, I think this is describing in a poetic way uh, some of the consequences that he was experiencing because of a very high fever. Um, many years ago, uh, right before uh, I, I came uh, to the church, actually, uh, when I was uh, late 27, early 28, um, I came down with uh, spinal meningitis. And uh, spinal men meningitis is an inflammation of the uh, spinal fluid that runs up your back and around, around your brain. And uh, the result is it just creates incredible, incredible headaches because of this uh, infected fluid around the brain. And it also creates incredibly high fevers. And I was hospitalized for a few weeks with fevers of 104, 105 on a daily basis for, for three weeks. And when my fever finally broke, uh, I then experienced what is common when you have very long fevers for a high time is that all my joints in my body swelled. They, my, my joints just blew up. And um, my elbows, my knees, wherever there were joints, they just, they just swelled. And they were just incredibly, incredibly painful. And it took well, probably a month and a half from the time that my fever broke and I started moving that I had enough strength that I could walk the block from my house to the church, for I was at the Reading Biofellowship Church at the time. It was just a, a really painful, uh, difficult period of time. And I, I think this is kind of what David is describing about his bones, uh, waxing old, like, like an old person. David is feeling like an old man because of the physical stress that this is taking upon his body. And then thirdly, David is a spiritual wreck. For he says, my soul is greatly troubled. Uh, to be troubled is to be vexed or to be afraid. He's talking now about how he feels in his relationship to God. And, and David's afraid. David's afraid. Uh, he's afraid of God at this, at this time. David's afraid of what is going to happen 
to him as a result of this sinfulness. David is afraid that, that God isn't going to hear him, that God isn't going to answer him, that, that God isn't forgive, going to forgive him. And that's a very real struggle that people often have when they are dealing with conviction. Uh, is God really going to forgive me? Uh, am I really going to be restored? Uh, can I be, once again, in a right relationship with God and with others? So he is emotionally, physically, and spiritually a wreck. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians, uh, we can get to that state, even as David did, of becoming emotionally and spiritually and physically a wreck. And David wonders how much longer he is going to have to endure. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long is this going to continue? But interestingly enough, the ball is in David's court. I said it, it was a year before David repented. So he was putting himself through things that he could have brought a, an end to had he been willing to submit to uh, the word of God and been willing to acknowledge his sinfulness and wrongdoing, but he was unwilling to do so. And so he says, how long, O Lord? And David asked for his life to be spared. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. Uh, David thought that he was close to death, and perhaps maybe he was. Uh, maybe he was so sick. Maybe he was so depressed. Uh, he at least felt like he was dying. As we look through the, the passage, we're going to see that he had some, some miserable, miserable nights. And so he asked for his life to be spared. Third, the reason for David's life to be spared. Why does David want to be spared? What basis does he expect God to spare him upon? Well, David is to be spared due to God's unwavering love. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Uh, David is assured that God's love is not fleeting. David is sure that despite what he has done, he is still going to experience God's love. But David has to kind of talk himself into that, which is a very important part of our spiritual struggles. You know, there are so many times in which our conduct and our responses and our actions do not equate, do not match what we know to be true. And, you know, if we're not careful, we can almost live our lives like a spiritual atheist. We can almost live our lives as though God doesn't exist when all the time we know that he does. And there are situations in which, you know, we just have to take a step back and not let our emotions rule us, but let the word of God rule us. And come to grips with what we know to be true, not, not how I feel. I may feel abandoned. I may say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
but yet he hasn't forsaken us. But we can feel that way. We can feel that way. And when we feel that way, then we have to sit down and reason with ourselves and say, well, I may feel that way, but I know that's not true. I know that's not true. So David isn't feeling very loved at the moment, but yet he knows that God loves him. And David's life is to be spared for, so that he can praise God among the living. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Shul, who will give you praise? In Shul, who will give you praise? Now an aside. This is not a statement that there is no consciousness after death. This is not a statement that says that when a person dies, that they have no knowledge of God, they are not in God's presence, or they're not giving praise to God uh, eternally. So it's not a statement that there is no consciousness after death. It's not a statement that dead do not, in fact, praise the Lord. Nor is this proof that there is no belief in the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. I say that because, unfortunately, uh, it's becoming all too common, uh, even in evangelicalism, to develop a concept that in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament saints did not believe in the resurrection. That that's just a New Testament teaching. It's not an Old Testament teaching, and the Old Testament saints did not have any glimpse, any thought of, or confidence in a resurrection. That in the Old Testament, they thought that when they died, that that was it. And it's here that uh, is a proof text. There are other verses. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that sounds the same. There, there are a few of these, these verses. But that's not what's being said at all in this verses and in the parallel verses. Rather, it's simply saying that David is not going to be able to speak God's praise to others once he's dead. He's not going to be able to have an influence for the kingdom once he's dead and gone. His voice will have been silenced. I'm not going to go through tonight and uh, now demonstrate to you that there was a belief in the resurrection in the Old Testament, etc. Uh, I, I think everyone here tonight would just shake their head and say, yes, uh, the Old Testament saints believed in the, the resurrection. But uh, let me uh, give you uh, Psalm uh, excuse me, Job 19, 25 to 27. Job says, as he's thinking about his death, as Job is so physically ill, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. David was assured that he was going to see the Lord in David's, excuse me, in Job's own flesh. He believed in a physical resurrection. 
he believed that he was going to be in the presence of God. And as I say, there are other passages like that as well. So I'll give you this aside because unfortunately, you know, people do horrendous things with the scriptures and, and teach things that really undermine people's faith when they're not being faithful to the text. The point is that after David dies, he will no longer be able to praise God and be a testimony among the living. This is a recurring theme in the Old Testament. For Psalm 30, verses 8 and following read, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. You have turned for me my groaning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. So here is this thought in Psalm 30. It's repeated in Psalm 51 that David is going to use this opportunity to give praise and glory to God. He's going to testify of the Lord's goodness in delivering him from this sinful state. He is going to praise God. So David says, I can't do that once I'm dead and gone. And he longs, he longs to make it right. He longs to have a godly influence. It's wonderful to think when we come to a place of despair and think that there is no possibility of us ever being used of God again to realize that God restores and that God gives us that opportunity to give him praise, uh, to counteract. Uh, as I said, when Nathan came to David, Nathan said to David, today you gave occasion in Israel to blaspheme, to speak against God. David wants the opportunity to speak for God again, to have the lips of God's praise upon his mouth. You know, not only did Israel see David's sinfulness, they also saw David's misery, and they also saw David's joy when his sin was forgiven. David rehearses his constant grief and here we see David in all of his misery. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Night after night. Night after night. And you know there are people that night after night are crying themselves to sleep. My eyes waste away because of grief. You know, that red puffy eyes that people have because of their constant crying. It grows weak because of all my foes. Now we have a new thought introduced, and that is that David has enemies. David has enemies. And they like nothing more than exploiting David's weakness. They are not come to be a help or an encouragement. They've come to be a discouragement. They, they have come to, to drive a nail in the coffin. 
They've come to add to David's misery and hardship. They are glad for all that David is going through. And they don't want to encourage David in his faith. They, they want to discourage David in his faith. They, they want to throw it up to David. Where is your God? Where is your God? And so they're his enemies, his enemies. You know, David, uh, excuse me, Job had three friends. Uh, they were poor counselors, but they were at least intending to be a help to Job. They turned out not to be much of a help, but they wanted to be a help. Here are his enemies who don't want to be a help. They, they don't want to relieve any of David's suffering. They just want him to suffer more. They, they want him to experience more pain than he already has. Uh, they want to make him pay for what he's done. So Psalm 6 verse 8, it says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Number five, David expresses confidence that the Lord will answer his prayer. Notice, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Three statements of confidence that God is going to bring about this deliverance that David so badly desires. David has confidence that his enemies will not have cause for rejoicing. David is not the one who will be embarrassed, it will be his enemies. All my enemies shall be ashamed, shall be ashamed. It's an interesting juxtaposition for David has been ashamed because of his sinfulness, but he is going to be forgiven and he's going to be having a cause for rejoicing. But his enemies are going to be ashamed because they are going to be proven wrong because they are going to be defeated. Uh, B, it will not be David, but rather his enemies that will experience turmoil and greatly troubled, and greatly troubled. David has experienced a hard year, if indeed this is associated with that period of time in life, and I don't know if, if it is, but whatever the occasion, he's gone through a lot. But it will be nothing, nothing compared to the those who do not know Christ, who are spending a Christless eternity. People talk about a hell on earth. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. I know people go through horrendous things. I know there's a lot of pain. I know there's a lot of suffering. I know there's a lot of misery. I'm not naive. But I tell you, it pales. It pales in connection with hell. There's this imagery of hell, of constant burning flames, and of a body that will not be consumed. David talks about his bones. David talks about his fever. David talks about his physical struggles. Nothing like hell. Nothing like hell. And so with them, it says, they'll be greatly troubled. And all this will change suddenly, verse 10. 
All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It's not going to take an extended period of time. It can happen like that. That they come to a sudden end, a sudden destruction. So here is David. And he's in the midst. He's in the midst of this great conviction of his sinfulness. But we see the curtain turning. We, we, we see the veil lifting. We see that David knows that God will forgive him when he cries out to him. Conclusion. There is much grief and sorrow that's associated with our sinfulness. God uses sorrow to bring us to a place of repentance. God is tenderful, merciful, and well aware of sufferings in the times of our sinfulness. Um, he has pity upon us in our sufferings. Um, we sometimes say when we are disciplining our children, it hurts me more than hurts you. I don't know how true that is, <laughs> how often it hurts us more to spank our children than it hurts our children to be spanked. But I do know that our God took upon himself our sufferings when Jesus Christ bled and died upon the, on the cross. He took our shame when people mocked him, rebuked him, said, if you're the Christ, come down from there. When they tore out his beard, when they put a crown of thorns on his head in mockery of a real crown. Weeds in his hand to represent a staff. Christ bore all of that out of a desire to bring an end to our suffering and shame. If we ever question God's willingness to forgive us in our sinfulness, if we ever think that we have gone beyond the pale, that now we have gone to the place in which God is just going to turn his back upon us, remember, there is only one person who can thus far say, why have you forsaken me? And that's Christ. That's Christ. He bore our sin and our sorrows. D, despite our sinfulness, God will still hear and still answer our prayers. E, we can have confidence that those who would be glad at our calamity will be, in fact, disappointed because we will be delivered. We will be delivered. Um, it is meant to be an encouragement, an encouragement in times of grief and sorrow. We sh should be wise and spare ourselves from such grief, but once we're there, it's wonderful to know 
that our God is a forgiving God. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us tonight. Uh, Lord, if, uh, if we stand in great need, if there's anyone here that's experiencing a great amount of conviction of guilt, Lord, I pray that you would refresh them and renew them by your spirit as they cry out unto you for deliverance. Lord, you have told us that the way of the transgressor is hard. May we understand that hardness. May we understand people's pain and misery. And certainly, Lord, may we not relish and delight in it, nor, Lord, help us not to add to it, but Lord, to pray for their restoration, to pray for their healing, to pray that once again, they can be used of you to bring glory to your name, to speak of the blessings of forgiveness and be able to speak in the land of the living of the goodness and greatness of our God. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.